Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It was in the 1970s in Kathmandu when a a teacher, a Tibetan monk, was teaching Dzogchen. And they always teach the most difficult things first with Dzogchen, just in case someone just gets it and doesn't need anything more. But with this, it was a six-week course, and after two weeks of it, people were scratching their heads and arguing. And they went to the teacher and said, look, we're we're very confused about this. Um, People have got different ideas about it. Um, Could you just sum it up in two sentences? And he stopped and he thought for a while, and he said, right. First sentence, don't believe your own bullshit. <laughs> Second sentence, enjoy the view. You, you. The Medicine Path podcast is an ongoing exploration into the intersections of spirituality, depth psychology, and psychedelics. The Medicine Path is a wholly independent and listener-supported project So please, consider becoming a supporter at patreon.com forward slash medicinepath or by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. You can find out more information at medicinepathpodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Brian James. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I speak with Mike Crowley, who's a well-seasoned practitioner and teacher of Tibetan Buddhism, a longtime psychedelic explorer, and the author of The Secret Drugs of Buddhism. Mike began studying with a Tibetan Lama in London back in 1966, where he also first encountered LSD and mushrooms. And much like my own journey with yoga and plant medicines, Mike began to see the striking similarities between what he experienced in the psychedelic state 
and the descriptions he found in the Vajrayana texts and teachings. These early experiences led him on a journey of scholarly and experiential research that continues to this day. I feel a lot of spiritual kinship with Mike, and it was a lot of fun to talk with a fellow practitioner who has come to some of the same conclusions that I've been led to in my own exploration of the role that psychedelics played in the development of Hatha Yoga. If you're interested in the connections that I've made, you can read my book, Yoga and Plant Medicine, or watch the short film I produced called The Shamanic Roots of Yoga on YouTube. Mike's already covered a lot of the evidence for his theories in other podcasts and presentations, so in this conversation, I decided to focus more on what it was that led him to these discoveries, the relationship with his Buddhist teacher that's lasted over 50 years, the kind of practices that helped open him up, the ways he blends Buddhist practice and psychedelics, what to look for in a teacher and what to avoid, and the benefits of choosing a spiritual practice and sticking with it. As you'll hear, Mike's got a great playful spirit, and he's got a real gnomic quality about him. So we had a lot of fun chatting and a lot of laughs. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope that you do too. So please, turn off your mind, relax, and float downstream with psychedelic Buddhist Mike Crowley on the Medicine Path. Mike Crowley, nice to meet you. Finally, we've got some mutual friends who thought that we should talk. I've, uh, I, I don't know if you know, but I've published a book called Yoga and Plant Medicine, and I made a short film on the shamanic roots of yoga, tracing the early use of Soma up through the tantric period and the development of Hatha Yoga. So some of our mutual friends in the psychedelic and Buddhist world thought we should get together and have a conversation. So I'm really happy that you could make it. Right. I've seen the film. I haven't, I haven't run across the book yet. Yeah. Well, I'll send you a copy. Um, oh, great. Yeah. Well, I just thought it would be helpful for anyone in my audience who doesn't know of your work or know of you. If you could just start by talking a little bit about how you got introduced to Buddhism and psychedelics. And I'm always interested in like, what came first for you? Well, they both came about the same time, actually. I think the, uh, I think Buddhism um, was first. I'm trying, I'm just trying to remember now. Um, Buddhism came first by a short head, I think. Mm -hmm. I, um, as a teenager, I was very active in um, uh, political groups, and I was very much involved with the campaign for nuclear disarmament, and uh, um, there was a week of... Um, lectures and workshops in um, my school. Actually, it was in a local, local school, not actually mine. And um, 
we were all given one day to go sort of spread out throughout the week. And it was um, of great interest to me. There were um, talks on uh, um, on nuclear weapons and um, colonialism and all kinds of um, left-wing stuff that I was eager to uh, get my teeth set into on every day except Tuesday. And of course, I was assigned Tuesday. Um, there was uh, there was nothing in, of interest to me, nothing at all, except there was some uh, guy who was speaking about Buddhism, and I thought I would join his workshop and just make a nuisance of myself and amuse myself in that way. So I questioned everything he said. And um, at the end of the lecture, I went and, uh, or I, I, the workshop, I, I mean, at the, uh, the end of his, uh, his um uh, his talk, which introduced the workshop. Um, I went up to him and said, that was fascinating. Where do I uh, find out more about Buddhism? And he was astonished and said, I thought you were dead set against it. And I said, well, I just asked a lot of questions and you came up with the right answers to everything I asked. So I'm I'm interested in learning more now. So... That was my first exposure to it. And um, he pointed me at the um, Buddhist Society of the United Kingdom at 58 Eccleston Square in London. I, I went along there every time I visited London, which wasn't often, but was, uh, um, uh, it was something which, uh, which I did every time. And um, I picked up lots of free pamphlets. And when uh, about three years later, I moved up to London, I um, enrolled in a class on Zen Buddhism and uh, um, was, um, which, which was taught by a wonderful woman called Irmgard Schlögel, which is, um, uh, quite a uh, uh, a splendid name for anyone. I I think it's uh, <laughs> whether Buddhist or not. Umgard Schlögel is a is a tremendous name. Anyway, um, I was living with uh, a friend who um, was a. Um, he was, he was an engineer on analog computers. Analog computers are something which we never hear of these days. It's all digital computers now. Uh, but he was he worked for British, oh, I was going to say British Airways, but it was actually BOAC, um, the uh, earlier incarnation of British Airways um, on their... Um, uh, the the pilot training equipment and um, um, he had a colleague uh, who lived on the same street 
in uh, in a uh, suburb of London, a, a little little village just outside London, in fact. And his friend was passionate about rummage sales, what we call jumble sales, and would hit about six of them in rapid succession on a Saturday morning, um, grabbing all the good stuff. And uh, on one occasion, he came back with a purba, a, um, a kind of brass peg, which had um, it has a uh, three-sided point, and at the other end there were three faces surmounted by a horse's head, and in the middle there was a um, a vajra, and uh, which is a um, the, a representation of a thunderbolt. I knew nothing of any of this at the time. Um, and um, he he would um, regularly come back to um, our place to show off his um, his finds and um, said to me, "Here, yeah, Mike, what do you think this is? Um, I think it's Mexican." And I said, "No, it's Tibetan." And he said, nah, "I think it's Mexican. I think it's uh, some fake Aztec." tourist thing and I said no I've got a picture of one in a book I'll show you and I run up to my room and came back with this this book I showed him the picture and he looked at the picture looked at the object looked at the picture and said oh yeah right well you can have it then if you're interested and I said oh surely not I can't afford that and he said, no, it only cost me tuppence, two pennies, that is. And um, so now I was um, lumbered with this, this object, which I had to find out about. Um, I took it with me up to the, um, the Buddhist society and showed it to them and said, do you have anything, any books, <coughs> excuse me, any books? which will explain what this is because the caption of the picture in the book that I had, which I had borrowed uh, from the Buddhist society library um, and just said Tibetan ritual object. And so I asked um, Pat Wilkinson, who was the, the librarian at the Buddhist Society, what it was. And she said, no, you've um, you've read both our books on Tibetan Buddhism. This was 1966, you understand. There were very, very few books on Tibetan Buddhism. Um, and uh, she said, but I'll tell you what, there is a, there is a Tibetan monk who has... Uh, just arrived in London. He is uh, exiled from Tibet. Um, Maybe he would be able to help you. And so um, she called him up, rang him up on the phone right there and then. 
and explained matters to him. And uh, um, I, I was speaking with him within the hour. He, uh, um, he was staying at the International Students Hostel in um, uh, Bloomsbury. And uh, I just hopped on the tube and went over there and uh, he answered the door, made me a cup of tea. We chatted and he told me it was a purva and uh, um, the Sanskrit for it was Vajrakila. And he, so he, he explained various things about it. Um, and um, I... I um, stayed there for about two hours chatting to him and said, do you mind if I come back next week? And he said, no, you can come back, you know, however many times you like. And I saw him every week for about an entire day. Every Friday I would spend with him for the next seven or eight years. And um, after three years, I, I took refuge that is, um, went through the ritual of becoming a Buddhist. And um, uh, uh, 20-odd years later, I was, um, I, I was ordained as a Lama. So uh, that's my history of, uh, of Buddhism. Well, you know. Yeah, condensed. A, a condensed history, yeah. And uh, at the same time, I had come into contact with LSD and was um, fascinated with these psychedelic substances. When I first encountered LSD, it was still legal. However, the Buddhist Society of the United Kingdom had a rule that if you had taken LSD, you were debarred from uh, joining the Buddhist society. Hmm. Um, they had um, um, accepted Alan Watts as an in, uh, as a a um, a member. I think he joined in the nineteen thirties, and um, was a frequent visitor and speaker at the Buddhist Society. But when he published his book, The Joyous Cosmology, which uh, um, explained how, um, how LSD worked and what it did and, and so on, they were um, shocked and outraged by, uh, by this. And, um, and had this panicked meeting where they decided to bar anyone who had even tasted the the substance. And so um, uh, I gradually weaned myself away from the Buddhist society. And uh, and anyway, I had my own um, my own teacher at that point. And so Whereas I thought I was going to become a Zen Buddhist, I actually became a Tibetan Buddhist and uh, and eventually a Lama of the Kaju uh, lineage. Mm. Um, 
I have continued my exploration of, uh, of uh, psychedelics and um, I am currently right, um, just polishing off a book, uh, that is to say I'm writing it, not reading it, on, um, on psychedelic Buddhism and how to use psychedelics in Buddhism and so on. Hmm. So um, there's my condensed history of psychedelics too. Yeah. So it's my understanding that at that time in the UK and in the US, it was mostly Zen Buddhism that was being taught and practiced. Is that correct? And Theravada, yes. Okay. And um, what we would uh, call the Shravakayana, the um, um, what um, is sometimes disparagingly called the Hinayana, the lesser vehicle. Hmm. Um, and so that was basically all the Buddhism that there was in the West was the Theravada and Zen. And you were basically one or the other. Um, so that's that does uh, explain why I'd uh, I'd plump for Zen as it was seemed uh, seemed more um, uh, philosophically satisfying to me than Theravada was. Mm. And what was it when you encountered um, the Tibetan? Buddhism through this teacher, what was it about it that sparked your interest enough so that you would continue to go back every week for seven or eight years? Well, um, I, I actually, to, to, to clarify, I, I, I've remained his teacher, his student until um, the present day. I, I, he is still alive. He's uh, He'll be 80 this year. He was only eight years older than me. Um, and um, uh, so what was so attractive to me was that he had a living connection to, um, to Buddhism. He had uh, uh, he'd grown up in a monastery. He was an incarnate lama. Um, and um, the very, very first time I, I got to see him, he taught me a meditation, which worked and worked much more um, uh, effectively than the other meditations I'd learned um, from both Theravada and, um, and from Zen. And it may have been his presence um, while we were meditating. Um, this is um, this is something which is uh, it's been commented on um, that there does seem to be a um, an effect of. Uh, experienced meditators that uh, if you're meditating in their presence, they they emanate um, um, calmness and clarity um, in a way that you wouldn't get otherwise. Um, yeah. So um, 
basically it was that I was I was getting a much more um, vivid transmission of the lineage um, uh, from him. I was getting a um, uh, a live um, example of the teachings and um, um, and so it, it, it was also it was also one on one. In fact, um, he didn't have any other students for uh, for for many many years after this. It was. It was about five years before he got another student, and um, and so um, I, I must say it wasn't um, it wasn't easy. Um, I had uh, studied with him for about three years um, as a as a friend and as a. Um, just a casual acquaintance, and uh, um, we were good friends. We went to the movies together. We, uh, we, you know, did you know uh, secular things together. And then, when I said I would like to take refuge, um, he um, sprang to his feet, left the room, and came back with eight sheets of paper and said, right, learn this and come back. And I looked at it and it was Pali. It was in the Roman alphabet, but it was in Pali, a language I'd never studied. And um, uh, I was like quietly boggling at this, thinking, oh my God, I've got to learn this. And, uh, and he said to me, well, what are you waiting for? Leave, go, go home, learn it, come back when you've learned it. And so I did. I went home, I learned it, and I came back and said, right, I've learned it. Well, and he actually, I came back and um, he wasn't there. He, he was, he'd gone to Scotland, gone to Samueling with uh, his um, childhood friend, Trungpa, Trungpa, uh, I mean, Chojam Trungpa Rinpoche. Uh, Trungpa had founded this um, meditation center in Scotland with Akong Rinpoche. And um, my teacher had gone to stay with him. And um, um, so I came back the week after and I, and uh, um, he, he was staying in someone's flat at the time. And he said to them, within my hearing, I could see him. He was standing there and he said to these people, oh, tell him I'm too busy this week. <laughs> and, and so I, I came back a third time. And he invited me in, made me a cup of tea. We sat down, we were drinking tea and chanting. And I said, what about this, this refuge stuff? And, and he said, um, when do you want to do that? And I said, now. And he said, good. And, and then we did it. So he, he, he freely admitted later that these were all tests 
this was all um, uh, all testing for me um, that he was just checking up to see whether I was the suitable material. Right. See if you'd stick around. Now, yeah. I wonder if I could circle back to that first meditation that you did with him. Uh-huh. What do you mean when you say that it worked? Oh, um, it produced a calm and clear state, a uh, state of samadhi, if you like. Um, and how is it different than what you'd experienced in the in the Zen or Theravada tradition? Um, well, the Theravada meditations were basically observe the breaths and count them. When you breathe out, count one. When you breathe in, think in. When you breathe out, count two. When you breathe in, think in. And you continue this to some small number, like five or ten, and start again at one. Right, your mind wanders, and then you start back at one. Exactly. And... Um, in Zen Buddhism, it was basically observing the mind and um, and or um, sometimes observing the breath or whatever. Um, but they did, neither of these seemed to actually work. Um, he uh, gave me a meditation which was. When you breathe out, imagine the sound OM. When you breathe in, imagine the sound AH. When you breathe out again, imagine PRI. Sorry, when you breathe, you breathe out again, you imagine the sound HONG. And then when you breathe in, imagine the sound HRI. Well, this um, was a, um, a shamatha meditation from the, the tantric system called Mahamudra, which I didn't know at the time. Um, but for whatever reason, it seemed to work. It seemed to um, produce this um, state of calmness and clarity. Mm -hmm. um, so working, with, working with mantra. Yeah, yeah. And asked, uh, f strangely enough, I asked him about Vajrayana and um, um, asked him what he could tell me about it. And uh, I said, I've heard there's Hinayana and there's Mahayana, but there's also something called Vajrayana, which I've read about in connection with Tibet. And he says, hmm, it's called a Bhadrayana's? No, I'm sorry, I'm never hear of it. Never heard of it. <laughs> he taught me a Vajrayana meditation, and he was claiming that he'd never heard of it. He was actually preserving his vows of not, um, not divulging knowledge of the Vajrayana um, 
to someone who was not prepared for it, which is not done these days mm. um, by any any teacher that I've ever heard of. Who's you know they they all they'll say oh yes Fajriana. Um, uh, come along next Wednesday. We're having a, a an initiation, and then we'll look. No, he didn't do any of that. He is like he uh, fully observed the the, uh, the vows, which are um, um, the the they they seal um, a Vajrayana initiation. You you take fourteen vows. And uh, one of them is not to reveal any of this. And uh, the very first part of the of a Vajrayana initiation is that you're given a sip of water to drink and you're told if you ever reveal this or you ever reveal any details of the initiation, this water will turn to red hot iron and will um, will burn you from the inside. So um, I have always uh, observed the secrecy of um, initiations myself and not mentioned any of the clues about mushrooms, which are given in various initiations. Um, even in my book, Secret Drugs of Buddhism, um, I have collected evidence from all the other printed books on the subject of, uh, um, well, not necessarily on the subject of drugs, but I have pointed out the um, the way in, in which Amrita is used and um, the way it's spoken of and so on. Um, but I have not revealed any of the... Um, the the teachings that I've I've learned in initiations, um, uh, but there is plenty of other stuff about uh, about uh, psychedelics and psychedelic substances, mainly psilocybe cubensis, um, in Vajrayana. Some. Um, some things in uh, Mahayana too, uh, but it's basically in Vajrayana. Vajrayana seems to be Mahayana with um, with psychedelics, hmm. uh, that it's it's Mahayana fueled by Amrita. Hmm. So um, you've got this foundation in. The Buddhist practice now, and then you start to experiment with LSD at some point. Mm -hmm. So, were you already interested in the secret drugs of Buddhism before you tried the LSD, or was that something that was triggered by the psychedelic experience? Um, let me think. Um, I think initially they were independent of each other. Hmm. But then um, Tim Leary published uh, The Psychedelic Experience, which was based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead, um, which, of course, is not its correct title. 
that was merely a, uh, a publisher trying to cash in on the Egyptian Book of the Dead, which had been a bestseller a few years earlier. I think it was published in 1927, and the Egyptian Book of the Dead had been published in 1924 or 25. And, um, and so he was uh, merely... Um, trying to piggyback on the popularity of the Egyptian Book of the Dead and with all the um, uh, the uh, hoopla and publicity that followed um, uh, the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb. Um, it didn't seem to work, actually, apart from uh, garnering the attention of um, Carl Jung, and um, a few other people who wrote introductions to it. It's, um, it's, it's quite uh, remarkable if you check out the original translation that Carl Jung's introduction is actually much longer than the book itself. Mm. Um, he spends a long time trying to uh, convince people that, uh, of course, he... Um, he understands all this. It can be explained entirely within his system and, and so on and so forth. Um, the, the person who published the book, uh, Evans Wentz, um, also buried the name of the actual translator that is mentioned very briefly in half a sentence in his introduction. Um, uh, he was a, a Sikkimese school teacher called um, Lama Kazi Dawa Samdup. Um, and um, Evans Wentz was a, a collector of um curious foreign scripts and um, when he was in northern india he had come across a copy of part of the bardo turtle uh, which is the, the the book of the dead and asked around if anyone could um could translate it and the uh, uh, Kazi Dawa Samdup said yes he could he, uh, and he, he translated it um, but as it was a um, um, wh what is what is classified as a, a, an Anutra Yoga Tantra um, text he he described oh, the, um, the 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 sullen Buddha, um, which are known as uh, incorrectly, by the way, known as Dhyani Buddhas. The Jina, which is another term for uh, Buddha, means conqueror. But the person who originally wrote the word down, uh, he wrote, it was the the English resident in Nepal. Uh, in the 19th century, wrote down um, 
a description of the the the, uh, the five Buddhas, and he heard Jina and wrote down Dhyani um, by mistake. And this has been reproduced by hundreds of writers attempting to explain these five Buddhas to the West and saying, oh, they're called Jhani Buddhas. Dhyani doesn't exist in Sanskrit. There is no such word. Um, however, um, the, 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 this text, the Tibetan Book of the Dead says, oh, there is a, the Southern Buddha is yellow with a yellow radiance. Western Buddha is um, red with a red radiance. Northern Buddha is green with a green radiance. Um, but the central Buddha is blue with a white radiance and the eastern Buddha is white with a blue radiance. And he says, this is, this is obviously backwards. They've got this muddled up. So the central one is, must be white with a white radiance and blue, the eastern is blue with a blue radiance. There, I've cleared it all up for you. Um, and... Uh, showing that he absolutely does not understand what the book is about, and that this um, uh, he was the first person to uh, explain away the book and um, added his own footnotes, which again um, are uh, they they uh, challenge the book itself in its length. And um, and try and uh, introduce um, theosophy to the uh, to the book and say, um, oh no no you can't fall down into um, the lower realms you have to be um, on a on a ladder a progress of being reincarnate from. Uh, uh, from animals to humans, humans to gods, and so on, and completely, uh, completely messed with the meaning. Um, so this was the original translator, not Carl Jung, right? Oh yes, this well, the original um, purveyor of this book to the to the West. This was Evans Wentz, not Samdok um, um, the. Um, the the actual translator who actually translated it correctly, uh, uh, but then Wentz went and uh, um, and tinkered with it and changed the text um, and explained it away. Carl Jung came in later in the second edition, I think it was, and explained it even further. Um, and diluted its message even more. The more uh, modern translations are much better and, um, and leave the text as it was. Um, there, is, um, um, there is a very good translation which was done by Francesca Fremantle under the tutelage of um, Chodron uh, Trumper. Um, and then there's um, another one by Robert Thurman, which is more extensive and includes a lot more of the prayers and, and other 
um, ancillary writings around the Bardo Turdal. Well, the, the Book of the Dead that we had from Evans Wentz was just a um, one text, one core text. It wasn't the whole um, a voluminous tama, which was uh, uh, supposedly discovered in the 14th century. Um, um, but um, uh, another thing which occurs to me, which is somewhat suspect, is that Evans Wentz was um, originally just called Wentz. He added the Evans to give weight to his, um, his book on fairy faith in the Celtic lands, I think. Some, it was a title, something like that. Um, and um, he thought by adding a Welsh name uh, to his own uh, would give him more authority in the subject. Um, <laughs> But being Welsh myself, I'm not falling for that. <laughs> so it sounds like um, even when that text was first introduced to the West, it was already being changed and put through this um, puritanical or um, theosophist lens that, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, like us putting that white figure in the middle, you know, being a symbol for purity, and that must be what we're striving for, or something. Like <laughs> yes, I think that was part of the, um, um, a part of of the whole process was uh, um, that the the well, it in the lower tantras that is the way it's portrayed with the central. Uh, figure being uh, Virachana Buddha, who is white with a white radiance. And only uh, it changes in the uh, Anuttara Yoga Tantra, uh, the fourth phase of, uh, of um, Tantra. Uh, there is an excellent book called um, uh, The Tibetan Book of the Dead, a biography, I think that's what it's called, um, by Lopez, in which uh, Professor Lopez explains all these various stages that it went through. Hmm. And it's a very, uh, um, a very enlightening and amusing book, uh, which I would recommend to everyone who, uh, who is interested in the Book of the Dead. Okay, so you encounter it through Leary's uh, reinterpretation of it as uh -huh. psychedelic experience, right? So when what happened to you when you encountered that text? Did you start to put some things together then? I did, yes. I, I began to um, uh, see the psychedelic experience through a Buddhist lens, if you like. Um, uh, but there was a, a particular event which occurred in which I, um, I, I was with various friends. We'd met at a, um, a house in the countryside um, next to a turkey farm. And um, 
we had intended to have an evening of um, uh, of cannabis intoxication. We had a um, well, one of our friends had a prescription uh, for cannabis tincture, which was something that you get in those days in uh, um, in Britain, and was legally entitled to um, a bottle of cannabis tincture, uh, a pint bottle, um, mm. for I believe it was either either sixpence or a shilling, which is like a, a nickel or a dime for a, for a pint of cannabis tincture, which was enough to knock out half of West London, basically. <laughs> um, and um, we, we each had a, a teaspoon of this tincture, and I thought I would prevent myself from... Uh, um, collapsing into total somnolence by um, taking a third of a tab of um, something which is now known as orange sunshine, but was known to us just as sunshine. And um, I remember being just blown away by this. I was standing on the patio looking towards the turkey farm next door. And I saw um, a cloud of tiny, um, brilliant dots in, uh, um, which were br bright dots against the darkness that was, uh, the, the, the sun had just gone down and, uh, I said to my friend who was standing with me, oh, look at the fireflies. And he said, he just had cannabis, you see. And he said, what fireflies? And as he said, what fireflies, the dots um, joined up and like interwove and made a kind of rainbow across the sky. And I said, um, never mind, <laughs> and went and sat down. <laughs> and listen to um, Bach on my friend's uh, uh, hi-fi system. And as I did, I, uh, I closed my eyes and what appeared to my closed eyes was another three dimensions at um, right angles to our dimensions of space. It was like I was looking into um, another world, and this world was filled with an array of perfectly spherical crystal spheres. And it, not only did each of these spheres reflect every other sphere in the array. But somehow I could tell that they were only the reflection of the other spheres. That was their entire existence was the reflection of the other spheres. This, this is sounding familiar to me. 
If you read the book, you you'll remember this. No, I, I haven't. I haven't read the book yet, actually. But it sounds like Indra's net. It is. Yeah, it's exactly like, Indra's net. Exactly, which I didn't. I I had never heard of it at the time, um, and um, it was a short while later that I wrote a book called um, "The Buddhist Teaching of Totality" by Gama C. C. Chang, and um, he explained the um the avatamsaka sutra and the the system of the avatamsaka school in china um which was known as the kagon school in japan um and the total interpenetration of of all phenomena and um I, I I read this book. I read the uh, the uh, explanation, which was made in the in in China about um, a thousand years earlier, and then there were excerpts from the Avatamsaka Sutra, excuse me, which was um, even earlier, uh, perhaps a thousand years before that. And it occurred to me there were there, there, there were uh, two ways of looking at this. Either psychedelics had allowed me uh, to witness uh, something which had normally only been uh, vouched to advanced meditators, or these uh, Buddhists who wrote the Avatamsaka Sutra and uh, and wrote about Indra's net had access to psychedelics themselves. Either way, um, I I saw this as a um, um, encouragement that I was on the right path, and perhaps I should practice both meditation and psychedelics, yeah. um, which I have done until this day. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, um, so, uh, well, just I want to pause there for a second. After, yeah. after that experience, um, do you then go to your friend and teacher and talk to him about this? Yes. Yeah. And um, um, uh, he, he said, I know why you take why you take drugs. It's because you're very smart. <laughs> He's like you're on the right track. Yeah, and that's all he would say. You're very very smart. And um, meanwhile, his friend Trumpa had um, debunked and left for the United States. Um, but before he left, he told my teacher that he was going to teach Vajrayana. But there were there was something about Vajrayana. There was one element of Vajrayana which he wasn't going to teach because he knew how Westerners would abuse it. And I believe that this was psychedelics. Hmm. Um, I had met someone from um, the house where 
Trumper lived. It was a, a hippie commune in um, in um, Notting Hill. And Trumpa had taken LSD with them um, several times and uh, criticized them for not taking it seriously enough hmm. and for not using it properly. Um, he, he, I'd also seen uh, Trungpa in the Buddhist society tell people to take LSD. Hmm. He also told people um, in his commune, uh, not everyone, but certain individuals, to stop taking LSD because they weren't treating it properly. And uh, so I, I understood that there was a, uh, a nuanced view of psychedelics, that they were not necessarily for everyone and they were not uh, to be trifled with. Mm. When, I, when I asked my yoga teacher what he thought about uh, working with psychedelics, because I had started to see the correlations and how psychedelics supported my yoga practice and the yoga practice supported my work with psychedelics. I started to put these things together on my own. And so I asked him about it, like what he thought uh, about that. And he always said uh, very directly that he felt that if you're going to do plant medicines or psychedelics, that you would need to do them in the context of a dedicated yoga practice of some kind. Uh -huh. I think that's probably true. Um, not necessarily yoga, um, yeah. hatha yoga, um, but um, within a, um, within the framework of a system, a spiritual system or a, a system of meditation or um something of that sort in uh, the vajrayana you are uh, given amrita at the outset of a an initiation and in in the past this was always um a truly psychedelic potion um and then you're you're also taught the visualization of a deity and the mantra of this deity, and after you've completed that initiation, you're entitled to attend Gana Chakras, a that, that is a, a tantric feasts, in which you again take the Amrita, and um, and enjoy various edible delicacies and rich clothes and what have you, but um, but you enjoy them without um, fully indulging yourself in it. You enjoy it from a, a reserved standpoint, from a meditative standpoint. Um, so, um, I believe that the Vajrayana shows a way of using psychedelics in um, in a way in which um, you are encouraged to um, pursue this 
uh, this meditative practice and to um, to um, to produce a uh, uh, a meditative attitude to all experience and to use all experience as part of your um, your path um oh your girlfriend left you don't be uh upset you know you you, know, you can be upset if you like but observe that 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 state of mind and um, and um watch how you are you know clinging to um the idea of having a girlfriend you or you um you might have uh, won the lottery well don't just uh, enjoy the um uh, the bliss of uh, of having you know one millions of of dollars um uh, observe that with detachment observe your your um, your glee and so on with um, with detachment and with uh, um, uh, a certain amount of of um, um, impersonal um, I yeah I I would say. Um, that yes whatever happens to you you can um, um use it you can examine your mind whenever something happens that uh, uh you're either attracted to or um repulsed by or even something which you would tend to ignore you can observe your mind and um and simply detach from it um and uh, eventually um produce a um a, a more um even and uh a psychic, if, if you like a, a more um um a more enlightened point of view right so what you're describing is <clears throat> kind of like a conventional meditative practice of non-attachment, observing, being the witness, watching all arising experience uh, uh -huh. from a more trying to be an objective point of view. So that's, uh, you know, I think that's a part of what's being promoted in the current psychedelic resurgence is to have a mindfulness practice or a meditation practice. But what I don't hear emphasized is a meditation or yoga practice that's part of a lineage that has these other elements like visualization and mantra, which are so integral to Vajrayana and Hatha yoga or Tantric yoga. Um, and I'm wondering what you think that those added elements, what they offer the experience because if it's all about non-attachment then why bother with any of the the visualizations the deities right. the mantras yes i agree um the visualizations and sometimes uh quite involved visualizations um 
you learn to um, you you learn to manipulate your mind in 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 one respect. You learn how to um, envision yourself as, for instance, uh, Vajrayogini, or in the lower tantras, Manjushri or Avalokiteshvara or whatever. Tara, maybe. Um, and um, in doing so, you can um, um, perform, these are all what are known as generation stage practices. The, the visualizations themselves are part of the generation stage of uh, tantric meditation. Um, and then um, in the completion stage, you practice things like uh, breath control and um, um, in, um, in the, the uh, in Tibetan practice, um, there are the six yogas of Narapa, which initially started in the Kaju and spread, have spread to all the other lineages now. I, I was about to say it was purely Kaju, but I had to, uh, uh, to, to correct myself. Um, so these practices like Tumo, which is the, the, the inner heat and um, the illusory body and uh, dream yoga and so on. These are all um, uh, considered completion stage practices. Now, in um, if we imagine uh, that we um, sit down and perform the preliminaries, uh, for meditation, which is the refuges and the bodhisattva vow and um, and so on, we we uh, generate feelings of love and compassion and uh, sympathetic joy and equanimity. Then we um, we generate ourselves as a deity and um, go through the visualizations, the mantra recitations, and then we dissolve the deity into a single syllable and then dissolve the syllable itself until you're left with um, nothingness. Mm. And uh, we, we then sit in the nothingness um, for as long as you like, basically, but um, 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 there are certain um, attitudes to be inculcated from the nothingness and from um, uh, from that practice, which uh, give you a. a um, a, a different perspective on the um, the experience than can be achieved by mere uh, um, 
by the the the, the Mahayana uh, system of um, uh, distancing yourself from your experience of just uh, dispassionately watching your mind and so on. Um, they can uh, introduce you to the mind as a, um, a shining void, as the, the Book of the Dead calls it, um, to see the mind as a, not as a thing, um, but as a, a process which has um, certain properties and it's being able to observe the mind itself, uh, which is valuable in these, these practices. Um, it's, it's often the case that you will use a, a deity visualization practice, but in my own school, the Kaju, there is a a deity uh, called um, Vajrayogini with no body, the bodiless form of Vajrayogini. There are there are six different um, bodied forms, right? Standing on one leg, standing on two legs, like flying through the sky, and so on. Um, but there is, in fact, one um, one practice in which uh, she is visualized as having no body, and you visualize yourself as having no body. Um, uh, this can be um, extremely valuable uh, to somebody who is uh, um, fixated on deities with bodies, and uh, and the the can only imagine a uh, um, a deity as being um, somebody that has, you know, so many arms, so many heads, and what have you. Um, to say, well, it hasn't got any of those. Now what do you do? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I've been uh, immersed in the study of depth psychology and Jung's work for the past few years, and it started to give me a different perspective on the yoga and shamanic experiences that I've had. And when you're describing this process, starting with the, the generation practices, I immediately start thinking, well, that's a way to start to awaken these archetypal energies and potentials within the person. So using the forms and the mantras, maybe postures or other practices. And then, um, so a way to access these, these archetypal energies within, but then culminating in this disidentification with the deity, with the form, with probably mm -hmm. that energy itself, which seems like a kind of, a. a a um a safety control so that the person doesn't become overly identified and possessed by this archetypal energy and get inflated and think that they're the vajra yogini and all that so it seems like a, a really elegant and beautiful system for awakening but then uh releasing or disidentifying or integrating it within your own structure i think um Integration is uh, is more the point here, as um, 
we are all enlightened. Um, it's just that we are all enlightened. And, uh, you know, do, don't think it's just you. Mm. You know, you must remember that everyone, every being in the universe has this same enlightenment, the same Tathagata uh, Garba, um, the same uh, inner core of their being is enlightenment. And it's just um, a method of reconnecting with that, with that central core uh, of um, Buddhahood. Um, so um, however we can do that um, is good. It's, uh, um, but we must remember that it's not just us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> not just well, and that that power isn't mine. Absolutely, absolutely. It's, uh, um, it's, yeah, it's. It just, is like uh, the power. Right. Yeah. So when did, in this whole journey, when did you start, I mean, did you ever start to mix the two practices? So you talked oh, about yeah. this uh, experience you had at your friend's house, but you're like hanging out on the patio, looking at fireflies slash Indra's net, and then listening to Bach. But was there ever any point where you said, okay, I'm going to try doing some of these uh, Vajrayana practices while high? Absolutely. Totally. Almost immediately afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, uh, there's this old commercial from when I was a kid, and it was for uh, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. And someone's walking down the street eating a chocolate bar, and around the corner there's another person uh, with a a jar of peanut butter. I've never seen anyone do that, but there they were. And then they, they come around the corner and they smash into each other. And the person says, you got peanut butter on my chocolate. You got chocolate on my peanut butter. And they go, whoa, this is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like there is this, like it was for me with the yoga and plant medicines. All of a sudden there was this like coming together of these two paths that I'd been on and exploring. And all of a sudden it was mm -hmm. like, oh, wow, like together. Now that's something special. So something similar for you? Um, yeah, yeah, it was very, very much. Um, and um, some years ago, it must be about, I think it was about eight years ago now, um, I um, actually um, tried this with other people too and uh, we held a Ghana chakra using ayahuasca as the amrita oh wow and um that was very successful in that um you know, i would say it was very successful as far as the meditation was concerned um i'm still not entirely happy with ayahuasca it has far, far too much body load. Yeah. It yeah. produces tardive dyskinesia in myself in that I simply cannot control my bodily movements. I can't sit up straight. I can't stand. If I, um, I needed to urinate, somebody would have to, like, um, walk me outside, you know, like carry me practically outside. And um, 
I wonder, did you, you know, ever, do you ever try it with uh, like just a teaspoonful? A teaspoonful of ayahuasca. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I have tried that. And that is, um, um, that's interesting. It's, um, it's just that to get to the spaces I wanted to achieve um, and requires more ayahuasca than my body can take, it seems. I'm, I'm a bit of a hard head with, when it comes to, to ayahuasca and to actually most tryptamines. Hmm. Um, a hard head meaning that you need a lot to break through? Oh, yes. Yes, oh, I'm sorry. This is Sasha Shulgin's terminology. I, I should have explained, yes. Yeah. So you have to take enough to break through, but then you start to have all the unwanted bodily effects that <clears throat> disrupt exactly. the, the meditative practice. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what do you think? I mean, I think in, in your book, you make the case for psilocybin mushrooms being a good contestant for the secret ingredient in Amrita, right? Right. Right. Um Although uh, there is a case to be made for using um, both Amanita muscaria and Psilocybe cubensis at the same time, hmm. um, which produces a very um, profoundly calm and meditative state. And like you would use half as much of each um, as you would normally use. Um, but they they are um, uh, a very uh, very productive synergetic combination. Hmm. Now, I mean, we kind of touched on this, but what do you think the psychedelic experience has to offer people who are really devoted to a yoga or? Uh, Buddhist practice, and what do you think, I mean, and vice versa, too. So, because what I'm trying to do is understand um, the place of the psychedelics in the Vajrayana tradition and also in, in the yogic tradition. What I found in my study of this in terms of yoga is, and the theory that I have is that originally there was a substance called soma that was used, or amrita. It's used kind of interchangeably in the old days. Oh, in the, in the Vedas, they they use the terms interchangeably. Yes. Yeah. So the kind of working theory that I've come up with is that back in the old days they used that, and that helped to receive the the downloads of all the knowledge, and then also they started to download practices, and so we see the emergence of Hatha Yoga practices, at which point the Soma ritual becomes internalized, and you're accessing the Amrita in the mind, and it becomes like a symbolic ritual in the body. Um, and then you kind of lose all use of substances aside from the, you know, the Shaivites who are using cannabis regularly, right? But in terms of like right. the, the Soma substance, they say, well, it just disappeared or it's only for the gods. Um, and I'm just wondering, like, if, if maybe that was an evolution, like we started with the psychedelics and then we learned how to access these states or transform 
transformations through other practices, other means. Well, I'm, I agree that um, it was that the, the practices came later than the substances. The, it seems to have begun with the substances. Although, uh, in fact, you're probably aware of uh, these so-called um, Pashupati figures in Indus Valley Seals, in which um, uh, people or deities, we don't know what they are because we can't read their script yet, um, uh, are seated in yogic postures. And on other seals, we see a, um, a straining mechanism with drops of liquid falling uh, underneath, which um, Professor Mahadevan says um, is almost certainly a form of soma. Um, this would have been this would have been psilocybe, though, rather than amanita. Now, the the so-called Deodar forest, um, in which Amri, uh, Amanita muscaria was uh, was found, disappeared in historical times, and so even even in the Vedas, they uh, they they seem to have difficulty in getting hold of Amanita. Well, we don't know it was Amanita in the we Vedas. We don't, we don't. But um, in in the Yajur Veda, it speaks of the um, hundreds of rudras which are spread about the surface of the earth, and uh, there, there are two kinds. There, there's the uh, the red rudras, uh, which are um, which are known to the boys who tend, uh, no, sorry, the, the red ruderers are known to the girls who fetch water from the spring, and the, the blue-throated ruderers are known to the boys who tend cattle. Now, um, the word for throat uh, is very similar to, um, uh, to the word for stem. And it seems to me this is just a simple um, word substitution, which uh, they, they mean the blue-stemmed rudras, but are, are being um, a little coy with the wording. And, and so they, they seem to refer to um, two species of mushroom. And uh, Amanita muscaria being the the red form and psilocybe cubensis being the blue stemmed uh, or blue throated form. But as the, the um, soma, whatever it was, became more difficult to find, um, the commentaries, uh, the Brahmanas, which were written much later than the, the Vedas, um, mention how, uh, what substitutes you are supposed to use 
for for summer and include the um, summer lata, which is the the uh, soma creeper or soma vine, um, which personally I think was um, Argyria nervosa, the so-called Hawaiian um, baby wood rose, um, which is really um, an inaccurate name. It's not native to Hawaii. It's native to Eastern India, the Eastern states of India, from Bengal south. And um, the, the, the Brahmanas also um, um, explain that the Soma dealer, the Soma seller, is a crook. The Soma dealer is a thief. There's, you know, it keeps <laughs> repeating these um, these imprecations against the Soma dealer, and <coughs> actually tells you how to cheat him. It tells you, you know, how uh, you show him your best cow, and then give him your worst cow. And uh, and if he complains, you are to beat him, and you are to beat him with this kind of stick. It should be a, a a bamboo cane of this thickness, and it should have spots on it. Like you know, they 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 go into great ritual detail on how you should beat up the soma dealer and and take his soma. I, I remember that it's like yeah, it should be like one angula thick or something like that. So it's like a yeah, thin, yeah, yeah, thin exactly. rod. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and um, and so. But that's like kind of. Um, that's like robbing the drug dealer. Yes, yes. I, I, I'd be amazed that they could ever get any deals out of him again. I mean, he's, <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to trust you next time, brother. It's, um, yeah. <laughs> you got to have a good relationship with your Soma dealer. Come on. Otherwise, <laughs> otherwise yeah. yes, he may try to cheat you. <laughs> yeah. And um, uh, there is the, uh, the, the, the problem. Um, uh, which is uh, quite persistent. I remember reading about it in in the Middle Way, the uh, magazine of uh, the Buddhist Society, um, back in '65, oh, I think, uh, which um, was what was the last meal of the Buddha, which was presented to him by the blacksmith named Chunda. Um, we have a name for the um, for the meal that was prepared for the Buddha. It was called Sukhara Madhava, and this means pig's delight. Now, it could be a delightful dish of pork, or it be something which delights pigs. Uh, we really don't know because um, this is what is known as a um, uh, hapax logomen, which means that it occurs only once in the language. Hmm. And, and we, we've got no other reference to it at all. But if it is something which delights pigs, um, it, it could be mushrooms. Mm-hmm. 
and he could have been given something which um, was thought to be Amrita, something which uh, was um, um, which was thought to um, promote longevity. Anyway, he added to it. He added all himself and. Um, um, told the monks who were with him, he only had novices with him at the time, and said, um, this is just for Tathagatas, it's not for novices, you shouldn't, you shouldn't eat this. Only those who, who know how to deal with it should, uh, should have this. Anyway, it didn't work, and he died. Well, and they buried would, that, the rest of it. That would make sense. I mean, if they thought that these mushrooms uh, gave the elixir of immortality, the Amrita, then it would make sense. Yeah. Okay, our, our teacher's dying. Let's give him a bunch of Amrita and yeah. hopefully he'll live. Exactly, exactly. And Buddha has a trip and goes, okay, this isn't for novices. Whoa, like you need to be able to control your mind if you're going to do this stuff. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and he dies anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he went out like Aldous Huxley. Right, right. Well, it was actually a few days later, but it, it was uh, it wasn't tripping when he left us. <laughs> okay, so you've talked a lot about um, your investigation into what the substances are or what they could have been that are in the different tantras and and all of that. Um, now, this new book where you're talking about putting it all into practice and integrating psychedelics into your, your Buddhist practices. I mean, what kind of detail are you getting into in terms of the practice? Does it go beyond uh, basic mindfulness or awareness of the breath, that kind of thing? Um, well, it's, it's written in two parts. First part is psychedelics for Buddhists. The second part is Buddhism for psychonauts. Mm -hmm. I like it. And um, and so I I explain meditation from the point of view of somebody who's never meditated, and I I do um, explain certain um, traditional techniques like. Um, the four Brahma Viharas, the, um, the, the the divine abodes, if you like, um, they're known as the four limitless states, and they have lots of different names, but they're basically love, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And um, I give the... Um, the ways in which these are generated, that you actually um, imagine all the beings in the universe surrounding you in a, uh, in a very pleasant park. And, um, and first of all, you, um, for, I should say, love is merely the wish for someone to be happy. If I wish, you happiness that means i love you and so you first of all imagine 
um, how much better you would feel if you were happy. And so you um, conceive of the, the wish for happiness for yourself. Then you consider your family and friends and think how much better they would enjoy life if they were happy and, um, and wish for their happiness. Then um, the people who are, the people you may know, you may know them by name, but not hang out with them. Maybe they're your colleagues at work, people who live in your apartment building. Right. Whatever. The, the circle starts to extend and extend. Yeah, right? exactly. And it goes all the way out to outer space and to, to um, um, invisible beings and what have you. And uh, so you, you do the same for each of the, 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 each of the, the limitless um you can uh then i follow that up with well let's pause uh, well, let's what happens if you if you're uh, you develop attachment to someone yeah but let's just let's just pause at that practice right okay because i've heard that similar practice uh described before and i can see how Doing that practice while under the influence of a psychedelic uh-huh. would really help to actualize the practice and make it real for someone. So first of all, the ability to imagine others, to really sense their presence with you, um, mm-hmm. that kind of uh, the sympathy that you're talking about, the ability to imagine someone else's experience or to uh, invoke the sense of happiness within yourself and being able to extend that to others, that would all be potentiated greatly by a lot of the psychedelics. Absolutely. So that's an, that's an example um, of the use of psychedelics with the practice. I've also, um, I also describe um mandalas and um, um, go into to some detail of what we're actually seeing when we we look at a, a mandala what you know that it's not often um, noticed that it's a three-dimensional view seen from above mm-hmm. Uh, basically drawn by someone who doesn't understand perspective. And um, um, Jung, when he read um, a chapter of a book on um, Buddhist mandalas, instantly... The, um, the Secret of the Golden Flower, I think, right? Oh, no, no, it was... Um, he talks about uh, mandalas in there and, and how a few things clicked uh, for him after reading that text that the, the mandala was a symbol of wholeness and right. cor- corresponded with his idea of the archetypal self. Right, right, that's right. Um, uh, yeah, I, um, I'm sorry, I, I was confusing it with what he actually read, which was uh, um, Art and Yoga in Indian Civilization by um, oh, Zimmer. Uh, a, an art historian called um, Zimmer. Um, so he did not realize that these were not just two-dimensional diagrams. 
that they were actually uh, descriptions of a three-dimensional construct, which in some initiations you are introduced to the mandala. Most initiations you're introduced to a mandala, but um, in some it's actually like a, a doll's house for a god. You know, it's a, uh, it's a... Um, it's an actually constructed thing. Building, yes. It's a little, it's a little building with, uh, uh, with little um, parasols and flags and things on the parapets and so on. I've never uh, seen, I've never seen a three-dimensional mandala like that. That sounds amazing. Uh, they're, they're usually, uh, they're usually... Um, kept under wraps except for the uh, initiations and not shown to the public hmm. um uh, but um so sorry how do you explain a mandala in your book or to some of your students how do you explain uh, well um i first of all mentioned that there are uh several different kinds of mandalas and um and go through the different kinds like um the 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 Mahabhuta mandalas, which are um, elements. mandalas of, of, I'm sorry? The elements. Exactly. The mandalas of the elements, earth, air, fire, water, and uh, ether or space or whatever. And, and then I get to the, the deity mandalas, which are revealed in a, uh, in an initiation. And I, I describe the um, the protective circle of um, uh, earth, water, and fire, which is around the outside, and the 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 eight um, mahasmashanas, the great cemetery grounds, um, and uh, and then inside that there are the walls and gates of the mandala, and right at the center there are the deities. And um, I explain these and the uh, and the the meaning of the directions and so on. Um, that, um, for instance, the the deity of the east. Um, often represents the uh, emotion of anger, and um, they, they uh, can represent purified anger, which is the uh, mirror-like wisdom. Uh, anger offers us a, a, an example of um, feeling very sharp, very focused, very. Uh, and very, very clear, like a mirror. Um, but if we, if we don't um, attach ourselves to the, excuse me, <coughs> mm. ah. what does a Buddhist say after he sneezed? You don't say God bless. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> Uh, in fact, a friend of mine um, pointed out that we don't mean um, God bless you. We, we might as well be just saying you sneezed. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, no, I don't think Buddhists say anything at all, apart from like maybe saying, oh, you sneezed, you know. <laughs> I, I say so, sp spontaneous pranayama. Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> it's a kriya, the kriya of sneezing. <laughs> it's it, it's sometimes said to be one of the bardos. Oh wow! Because yeah. you disappear in that moment, you sneeze, you're gone, exactly. right? Exactly. Wow! Exactly. I never thought of that. Amazing. So they recognize that. Yeah. Oh, cool. <laughs> um, sex is another one. Right. And orgasm, that is. Orgasm is a bardo. Sneezing is a bardo. Yeah, le, pit, le petit mort, the little death. Yeah, la, la petite. Oh, la petite. La oh, this is feminine. Ah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Excuse Otherwise, you're saying the little dead man. Excusez-moi. Well, it's a little dead man after the little death. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Soldier falls down. Anyway. <laughs> So describing these mandalas, so are you encouraging people to work with the the mandala visualizations with um, under the psychedelics? That's really, that's really up to them. If they've had the appropriate initiations, yes, they can. Um, I, I do point this stuff out. That's what I was going to ask. Like when you're sharing stuff like that, do you not think it's important to um, have the guidance of a teacher? Because like you said, your teacher decides like, I don't think you're quite ready for this or they keep the sheet the 3d mandala dollhouse, you know, until you're kind of ready or you've gone through the proper initiation and showed the dedication, right. all of that. Right. right? Absolutely. Yeah, come. Oh, 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 by the way, I didn't finish that story about um, learning the eight pages of Pali when he eventually said. Well, I was yeah, going to ask okay. you about that. Yeah, I was going to ask. We didn't use it at all. We didn't we, use one word from that eight pages. Uh, it was just a test. Well, I was going to ask, when you say learn, does that mean you just learned how to say Memorized it phonetically? It. Or uh -huh. did, you, did you actually do the translation and know what you were saying? No, no, okay. I didn't. I just learned it phonetically. Wow. And um, uh, so otherwise, I'd have had to learn Pali, which I, you know, I, I probably would have done, but um, it was a bit much at the time. Well, you know, the, the big joke was that that was just a bunch of his uh, mother's favorite recipes that he took with him. <laughs> There's nothing spiritual about it at all. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was counting on you not uh, translating it. Um, well, I've also uh, I've I've come to a, a point where um, I've I'm, um, I've described a couple of pranayama, um, or in Tibetan it's called salong uh, practices, and I've stopped short of. Um, the practice of Dumo, which is the inner heat. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure whether I should teach that. It's available in, um, um, in books. Um, so it's no longer secret, but should I include it in this work at all? Um, and, uh, and so I've, um, I've described uh, vase breathing um what's that uh which is um 
it's a very deep breathing and holding of breath. Um, and um, Oh, that's interesting you call it. So in Hatha Yoga, we call it Kumbhaka, which means yeah, that's full. That's right, Kum Kumbhaka. Like, yeah, because it means full like a pot. So you fill yourself up and you hold it and you contain. Yeah, that's exactly, exactly the same thing. Yes. Okay, cool. Um, but I do not describe how the 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 breaths are supposed to go uh, from the left and right channels into the central channel. Shh, wait, wait, you're giving away the secrets right now. <laughs> <My God. laughs> yeah. Well, I haven't described it. I I don't describe how that's how that's done, how that's performed. Um. So, um. I mean, I, I could, I suppose, as it's it's described in um, in a number of different books. But don't you think uh, that, like, if someone's just reading, getting an introduction through a book, they're at a very beginner stage, and so they're only like beginner practices are going to be, um, you know, even accessible to them, really, because they still got to like to be able to do like the full kumbhaka with visualizations and all of that energetic movement and everything. You've got to have a lot of control over your uh, attention. Right. That's true. Um, but I have considered that I may be um, teaching people who have already embarked on the path and they may be at various different stages and not just all beginners. Mm -hmm. um, I've even included um, some um, that, like divination practices, which would be, you know, applicable to all apart from the, uh, the, the tantric um, magical um, homas, the, uh, um, the fire rituals, uh, which have uh, different hearths and so on. And those I have described in, uh, in very sketchy and um, um, hopefully tantalizing ways so that people, you know, will investigate the tantras. Um, although I've told the reader that... Um, it's not appropriate to uh, to pr pursue the path with um, the hope of developing magical abilities because you will lose the magical abilities as soon as you start that. Um, it is, um, it's quite possible to develop um, such things as clairvoyance and, uh, and prescient dreams and uh, so on. Um, if you do, um develop um calm abiding meditation will produce prescient dreams and so on mm. um but it's not appropriate to to um pursue those paths purely so that you'll get the um riddies and cities that are uh, um normally part of the path in fact i do quote a um, uh, a little um, piece of advice from the 
uh, I think it's from the Visuddhi Maga, um, which says that um, it is possible to um, to produce the, um, the the city of being in two places at once. But if you are capable of doing this, please don't, because it confuses the hell out of people. Yeah. Just ask anybody who's been on Zoom for the past year and a half. <laughs> it totally messes with your sense of time and space and equilibrium, for sure. Um, well, you know what I found? Like when you're actually uh, doing practices that incorporate all these elements, and there's so much correspondence between Tantric Hatha Yoga and the Vajrayana um, Tibetan practices, for sure. Like they would, you know, the old thing is, well, the Buddhist was a yogi. Like a lot of this stuff migrated over and was incorporated. Uh -huh. Um I think when you're doing the practices where you're doing visualizations uh, along with the breathing and embodiment practices and mantra, like it's all really utilizing your imagination to a fuller capacity than what normal people are are doing these days. Like there's, we're just inundated with so many images from the outside that I think people's imaginations have kind of shriveled and, and dried up to a large extent. But when you start stoking the imagination up in that way, I find that just a natural byproduct of that is a really heightened intuitive sense that almost at times feels uh, like extra sensory perception. It really does feel like a siddhi. My wife jokes about it all the time. Like I'm always predicting numbers or what someone in a movie is going to say next or something. Like it's just, it's kind of amusing and, and fun. Um, but it just seems to be a natural byproduct of these practices, like without striving for anything. It just, it just happens. Mm -hmm. That's true. Um, yeah. I um, restrict the amount of um, input from um from media these days i don't have a television i am um, uh, if i sit down at the computer i'm usually writing whatever i you know well it's a uh, uh, i i don't usually um like sit back and let myself be bombarded by somebody else's ideas yeah um, who wants who wants like i do all this work to empty out my mind and then do i want to just <laughs> fill it up with somebody else's crap no way. <laughs> it's like here in Canada, you got to take your shoes off at the door. You don't come tromping in with your shoes into my living room. <laughs> I'm very careful Quite about so. that. Quite so. Well, I'm wondering, Mike, um, I, I think, you know, this has been a really great conversation. And I guess the question that's just still hanging there for me is what is your goal in sharing all of this stuff? And now like get, even getting into sharing practices, um, I'm sure you're ruffling some feathers in the, in the, the Buddhism world, but what's your goal? Like what drives you to put all this out there? Um, well, it's to, 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 let people know that there is more. There is more than just uh, using psychedelics. So there's more than just sitting in meditation. And um, to, to a certain extent, um, 
I want to tell Buddhists that there's nothing um, holy or sacrosanct about meditation itself. It was just the way that was available to most people at the time. Um, even in even in Tibet, um, it's there right. Are, like you're up in there, the you're up in the mountains. There's not a lot of plants around. There's probably that's not, true. There's not psychedelic plants around. So you ferment some yak's milk. You do some crazy breathing practices <laughs> <laughs> because people want to get into these altered states. I mean, it's just yep. part of human nature. Yes. Um, but I, I would say that there is um, there, there, there are tamas, um, which are um, discovered texts, like treasure texts, buried treasures, and um, these have been turned up since the 12th century. And some tamas are um, actually pots of pills. And some are, I mean, there, there are tamas that say there are, you know, various ways to enlightenment. There's um, enlightenment by hearing, uh, which is like the Bardo Turtle, Book of the Dead. Uh, enlightenment by wearing talismans, enlightenment by tasting, enlightenment by thinking. Oh, it's wait, wait a minute, back up. Tell me about that tasting thing. What's that? And this is Amrita. This is they are talking about Amrita. And there is, in fact, one part of, of Tibet which is uh, a, a low level, uh, jungly area called um, Munyul. Munyul. Uh, is um, near the borders of um, of Bhutan, and um, it's said to be said to have um, several um, secret lands hidden there, um, like uh, Pemako, and um, there is a uh, th there is a um, a guide to Pemaco, which was written a few hundred years ago, which describes all the plants there which can um, enlighten one. If you eat this plant, you get this enlightenment. If you eat this plant, you get this other enlightenment, you know. Um, so it, it's been there all the while. And... Um, so this is my this is my intent is to to tell people that uh, you know meditation is fine uh, you know keep it up but it's not the only way and it's not the only you know um, it's not some better way more holy way more pure way it's just another way it's exactly exactly that and also for people who are taking psychedelics I'm. You know, and I'd like to tell them it's not the only way. There is also meditation. There's also, you know, just the practice of looking at your mind while you're you're, you're uh, tripping. It's a bit like a bit like going to the cinema or watching television and not realizing that you're looking at a screen the entire time. Like you may mm. see. Um, 
a thriller, a romantic comedy, a cartoon, um, without realizing that it's all appearing on the same screen. Like, uh, um, pay attention, there's a screen behind it all. Mm-hmm. And that is, um, that's one of the one of the teachings I would like to to spread. Um, if people are any of your viewers are interested, um, I have an organization called Embrita Zong. It's a um, it's actually the, the the identical name to my own teachers organization in the UK, and this is the United States version of it, includes Canada too, because in 1989, he gave me responsibility for teaching all of his North American students. So if you would, um, if anybody would like to, um, to find out about my teachings or whatever, it's amritadzong.com. A-M-R-I-T-A-D-Z-O-N-G dot com. Mm. And um, so uh, we occasionally have retreats here at the, at my, I have a 20 acre farm in the, the middle of the Shasta Trinity National Forest. And that's, a, that's um, in uh, Northern California? Yes, Northern California just uh, 52 miles southwest of Mount Shasta. And um, if um, people would like to contact me, there is a a means of doing that on the the website, amritadzong.com. You also do some events uh, with my friend Eric Davis through the San Francisco Psychedelic Society. Is that I right? have done, yes. Yes, I'm... Um, um, ever since the Psychedelic Sangha started, I've been uh, co-opted onto <laughs> the advisory board, um, and I'm still waiting to be asked for advice. I'm... <laughs> <laughs> I've not advised anyone so far. <laughs> well, let let me let me extend that, you know, on behalf of the people listening and watching, you know, um if someone uh wants to get into this and they want to go beyond the meditation app, where's the uh-huh. place that you would recommend they start? Is it finding a local teacher or do you think it's just as powerful to work with someone like you over Zoom or however else you might be doing it? What's the next step for that person who has got a little taste of something and they want to really dedicate themselves to a, a real lifelong practice? Well, I think either either connect with a local teacher, find a um, a school which appeals to them. I mean, not necessarily a school of meditation or whatever. I mean, a lineage, a uh, lineage of teachings. Um, or contact me. Um, I am, you know, I have a very low level of, uh, of teaching at the moment. Um, I have um, 
local meditation classes, which I do once a week on Friday evenings. Um, but apart from Friday evenings, I'm, I'm free most of the time. That's cool. So, hey, everybody, there's a seasoned teacher here who's gone deep into both a lineage-based meditation practice and ritual practice and psychedelics. And he's saying right now, I'm underutilized. <laughs> what, a, what, a golden, what a golden opportunity. What, is, what does your teacher think about you being so open in public about uh, the psychedelics and, and Buddhism and even sharing some of those Buddhist practices that were kept under wraps? Do you, ever, um, do you ever check in with him and go, hey, uh, are you okay with me putting this book out? <laughs> I, 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 I don't think he even knows that I, I had a book, that uh, I've actually written a book, um, or that I'm writing one now. I saw him, I saw him, let me see, two or three years ago. And that was the, that was the last I saw him. Um, and um, he he gave me his blessing when I when I saw him. It was um, uh, it was uh, it was a very amicable meeting. Um, but I, I I don't think he knew about the book. But um, mm, that that suggests to me that maybe you were hiding it from you're withholding. <laughs> oh no, no, I no, it was um, it, it was at a funeral. So I, I didn't get oh, okay. to uh, to you know to to mention anything in full. Um, I should uh, I should send him a copy though. He he'd probably enjoy it. He doesn't read much English. He doesn't speak much English. But um, um, he'd, uh, he'd he'd probably give it away. You know, <laughs> everything that um, that people give him. He gives away the, the in the next few days, you know. He was somebody, somebody in Australia gives him a, a gold statue. And the next week, one of his students gets a gold statue. It's <laughs> before we go, um, I, I, I heard something on an interview that you did a while back that I just absolutely loved. You were talking about an early teacher, I'm not sure if it was a teacher of yours, but they were asked by a Western student to summarize, uh, I think, Zen or, or Buddhism in general. Oh, and it was Dzogchen. Can you, I know what you're going to say. Can you just tell this? Because I absolutely, I love it to my core. Oh, and um, it was in the 1970s in Kathmandu when a, a teacher, a Tibetan monk, was teaching Dzogchen. And they always teach the most difficult things first with Dzogchen, just in case someone just gets it and doesn't need anything more. But with this, it was a six-week course, and after two weeks of it, people were scratching their heads and arguing. And they went to the teacher and said, look, we're, we're very confused about this. Um, people have got different ideas about it. Um, could you just sum it up in two sentences? And he stopped and he thought for a while and he said, right, first sentence, don't believe your own bullshit. 
Second sentence. Enjoy the view. <laughs> That's so perfect. <laughs> when I um, when I, I yeah, love that myself. I, I when I talk about the Yoga Sutra, like Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, um, it can be very very hard for people to grasp or get into it. It took me a couple teachers to be able to start to understand it. And then over the years of practicing, you know, I think you get a deeper understanding of things where you can start to interpret. And I would, you know, people ask like, well, what is the goal of yoga? <laughs> and I would basically summarize Patanjali's teaching as stop taking yourself so fucking seriously. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I mean, we can go into detail on that, like how you go about doing that. But basically, at the end of the day, is that's why you're suffering. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I really appreciate uh, your approach. I could tell, you know, you've you've been cooked long enough to have a sense of humor about it all and not take all of this too seriously. <laughs> Quite. I'm, I'm like, I, I surprise myself sometimes. Um my, uh, my my car, which has been perfect up till now, just died last week. Oh. Just completely flat out died. Um, clouds of smoke coming from under the hood, and uh, I took it to be repaired. And they said, "No, nope, can't do a thing with it. It's fucked." And um, and I was I was remarkably. Um, insouciant about it oh well it's only a car you know and uh have to get another one now and that's no oh, you, you look you're look <laughs> so um yeah it's my cat i found him uh when he was just born um and he was um on my porch on my my deck I came home and found him um, with uh, wow. his eyes and ears closed. He was still wet from being wow. born. He still had his umbilical cord attached. And he was like crawling around and around in circles. And there were like, um, I think, three other cats looking at him going, what the hell is that? And, um, <laughs> and so I brought him up ever since. Um, and uh, he is my constant companion. He's like, he, he, whatever I'm doing, he'll be doing it with me. I've got an animal familiar too, and uh, I, I've learned so much from my my dog friend. <laughs> <laughs> Probably more than any human teacher, to be honest. <laughs> yep. They've got that naturalness that uh, that we strive for. <laughs> well, you know, it's so funny. I mentioned that story about Ramdas meeting Neem Karoli Baba for the first time and it being so profound for him because it was the first time I was ever with anyone who accepted me completely for who I am and all that. I said, dude, haven't you yeah. ever lived with a dog? <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's exactly right. <laughs> okay, maybe to wrap up, I, I have to ask you this. As uh, someone who is further down the road than I am, I would love to hear from you, you know, after 50 years of practice or however long it's been, what has the dedication to a lineage-based practice, what has it given you in your life 
that you suspect maybe other people aren't receiving as they um, kind of do the magpie practice of just picking up things here or there, like that kind of dedication. It's a real commitment. And I'm wondering what you think is the benefit that you've received from that. That's unique. Mm. I think it's the, uh, the wisdom of the ages. I, I think is um, one way of putting it. The, 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 The laughter, which as um, which seems to permeate the lineage, the um, the being being soaked in the 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 wisdom of centuries and still not taking it seriously, still not not being so completely po-faced about it. Um, and um, whenever I see my teacher, he is always um, smiling, always. And um, uh, so it's, uh, yeah, it's just that, I think, just that, that um, um, we can, we can be wise, but part of that wisdom is also um, to see the funny side of things. Yeah, it might even be an indicator of real understanding and wisdom. Yeah, could be, could be. I, I think it probably is. Yeah, and when you're describing that, like, um, you know, the lineage has been going on so long, and yet they still retain this sense of humor. I wonder if the sense of humor is because it's been going on so long. Like with somebody new to a practice, there tends to be this like real sincerity, you know, and a real seriousness and uh, preciousness about it, you know. And some somebody that's been doing it a long time, you can tell it just seems like really naturalized with them. They're they're not precious about it. They can laugh about it and themselves, and you know their lack of full integration or enlightenment. So it seems to actually to to go hand in hand with the the duration, like the like a fine wine aging. Things have consolidated and found a richness and a depth of a flavor. You know, that you don't get with, uh, it, it takes time. I think it takes uh-huh. time. And, and it takes dedication in order to spend that amount of time steeped in something. You got to pick a, you got to pick a path <laughs> to receive the full benefits, I think. I believe you're right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, just to say, you know, I'm always trying to encourage people to to find a path that resonates with them, that they're attracted to, and just stick with it. Like, give it uh, six months, just as a personal experiment, just to see, because I think that there's a real benefit in that. It it gives a kind of clarity and direction to your practice and a structure to it that you don't otherwise have and can leave you feeling kind of lost or discombobulated or confused by all the conflicting information that you're receiving. So my suggestion is always find, first of all, a teacher who you like, that you admire mm-hmm. some qualities about. 
Because, you know, if they've got something that you admire, well, maybe their practice has something to do with that, you know? And then, right. and then really um, dedicate yourself to, to following that path is just like a, a personal experiment, you know, just find out for yourself. In, in the, the, the new book, I've actually included some, um, some tests for a teacher, how you can, um, you know, if you find a teacher, you know, meditate with him, sit with him a few times. Um, and, <laughs> uh, yeah. and uh, you know, just, you know, look out for warning signs. You know, like if he charges money for teachings, then um, he may not be the one for you. Uh, he's not the one for me, certainly. I don't charge for teachings. Uh, if you want to donate something, that's fine. Yeah. Um, but um, if he gives himself fancy titles, um, if he, you know, if he's not known by other members of uh, the lineage that he uh, purports to belong to, you know, these are the, these are warning signs. Um, but how about um, drink ayahuasca with them? <laughs> yeah, well, that's a, that's a good one. Yes, uh, I've actually I, I actually included something like that. I say ask him about psychedelics, um, and if he's uh, if he's cool with it, then. Uh, that's fine because the better teachers are cool with it. I remember there was a teacher I read of once in the early 70s, I think it was, who said that uh, his students should stay away from LSD because LSD will put your practice back 19 lifetimes. <laughs> and I want to know how the hell he could know that seeing as LSD hasn't been around for 19 lifetimes yet. It's yeah. not, like, even now, it's not been around uh, for 19 lifetimes. It's, um, well, well, like, 2,500. It's like three generations. Like three, yes, three generations so far. Um, so um, that's only generations, too, not lifetimes. So, uh, oh, well. Yeah, um, I'd say beware of anybody who speaks with that kind of finality and self-assuredness about something they don't know anything about. Um, stay away from them. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yes, so anybody who's like who is certain and positive about anything. Um, my my teacher always advised people against forming opinions. Yeah. Any opinions? Yeah, or it's it's okay to have uh, opinions or, or preferences, but hold them actually really lightly because um, the opinion you hold today may want to be a different opinion tomorrow. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like we got to we can't just be in uh, non-attached uh, witnessing all the time. Like we want to like lose ourselves in the movie of life every once in a while, right? But we got to know that there's another option too. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> we yes. can we can step out of the movie if we choose. We can, we can go into the foyer and buy an ice cream. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Enjoy the view and enjoy the ice cream sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, Mike, this has been really great. I'm glad our friends put us together because I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, talking to you and listening to your your stories and uh, your journey has been really fun. Well, thank you very much. And um, um, check out amritadzong.com and uh, um, yeah, I'd be, I'd be interested to know what you think of it and because uh, I've only just recently started the website. And um, and if you think there's anything which should be added to it, um, I was thinking that it should also include a schedule, which I don't have um, <laughs> as part of it yet, but could easily do. Yeah, man, get some events up there. Yeah. Yeah, um, I've got a couple of, um, of retreats planned for later in the year. Oh, great. But it's... Um, um so um um if, if any of your viewers would care to come here for a, a retreat i would say bring a, a tent and a sleeping bag and um i'll try to keep keep you amused uh <laughs> now when you do the retreats i don't know if you can say this publicly but do you use psychedelics on the retreats? I have done. I have done in the past. I can I can say this now because California is in the process of legalizing all psychedelics. Oh, wow. Great. Yeah. Passed three committees and it's just got to go for the governor's signature now. That's amazing. Yeah. Excellent. Um, and, and it's basically anything except mescaline, which has been extracted from peyote because peyote is endangered. Oh. Synthetic mm -hmm. mescaline is fine. Hmm. Okay. That's actually quite responsible. <laughs> it, isn't it? It was a friend of mine who got that included. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So, yes. Um, uh, come along and we'll 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 do some um, we'll do some initiations and uh, and uh, hand out and read it to everyone. Yeah, and you can stop believing your own bullshit and just enjoy the view. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, like don't believe your own bullshit, and especially don't believe mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thanks for that mike i appreciate that <laughs> all right mate all we'll right. take care we'll see you down the road i hope bye-bye now bye-bye <laughs> the medicine path is produced by brian james on unceded coast salish territory vancouver island canada for more information visit brianjames.ca Music by Olive Artizoni, a.k.a. Greenhouse. Join the Medicine Path tribe and gain early access to episodes and the full podcast archives at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. May the rain fall soft upon your fields. Until the next time we meet on the medicine path.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.